Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Today on V Radio, we are proud to have uh, Solar Roadways, Scott Brusaw. Um, to any of you who are new to the show, please visit my website, vradio.org. That's v-radio.org or v-radio.org, uh, where you can see archives of other shows like this one and a must-see TV list of various documentaries that you can watch for free online. Um, well, um, Mr. Brusaw, first of all, did I say your name correctly? Yeah, it's Brusaw. Excellent. Call me Scott, though. Scott. All right. Well, um, Scott, go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners. Hi, um, Scott Brusaw, Solar Roadways. Um, let me just go ahead and start talking about the project. Uh, well, uh, first, just kind of introduce yourself. Tell them about you know you. Maybe where'd you go to school? Where'd you learn about this stuff? Oh. And then, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, I received. I'm an electrical engineer. I received my bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Dayton in Ohio. Mm-hmm. Um, went to work after that. Spent 12 years as a director of research and development in a manufacturing plant in Ohio, designer product line, and all that. Then we moved here to North Idaho about nine years ago. I've been doing contract engineering and teaching at a technical college since then. And basically, uh, about four years ago, we began working on solar rotors full time. Yeah, actually, uh, I actually learned about you via your TED talk. Um, uh, I believe were you in was it TED Houston or Sacramento? I'm trying to remember. Sacramento. Sacramento. Okay. Now. Um, the first question I generally ask people, you know, uh, was exa- basically what was the precipice for you? What was the moment that got you uh, involved in this idea of trying to fix the world rather than just being, you know, a, a cog in it? Well, that goes back a few decades. <laughs> Actually, my, I met my wife when we were three and four years old. Her mom used to babysit me. Mm-hmm. And back then, you know, we went to preschool together and Sunday school together, same first grade class, whole nine yards. And at that time, one of my favorite toys was my little slot car track. Right. They're not, I don't even know if they still sell those. They're little electric cars, and there's little metal. There's a slot they travel along so they can't fall off the track, and they have little pickups underneath it to take electricity up off the track. Right. So as a child, maybe very young child, I started thinking, well, if we could make real roads electric and kids could drive. Mm-hmm. And that stuck with me my whole life. And, you know, Consequently, I wound up with electrical engineering degrees, but that you know, I've never pursued that much. Anyways, about what was it, ten years ago, when the, the news started talking about global warming. Right. Maybe as long I don't remember, but anyways, we were out in the garden one day, and Julie turned me and she said, "Couldn't you make your electric roads out of solar panels?" Mm-hmm. And I kind of laughed at first. I thought, "No, you can't even step on those things; they're fragile, let alone mm-hmm. drive on them." But we started batting this idea back and forth: what could we make that you could drive a truck on? that we could house solar cells in. We started thinking about, um, I'm not sure what the technical name is, is for it, but the black box on an airplane. Right. What that, really, what that really is is a structurally engineered box that houses sensitive electronics and that's able to withstand like the worst of airplane crashes. So I thought if you can do that, you can certainly make something and drive a semi-truck over the top of. So that's kind of where we went, we started, how we got started. And uh, we started designing a structurally engineered box and initially, we were just thinking about putting solar cells in it. But then we started thinking, you know, we live in North Idaho. We had like over 130 inches of snow here a couple of years ago. If the mm-hmm. snow is on top of your solar panel, they stop working. Right. So that wouldn't do any good here unless we could heat the surface. 
So since the surface has to be glass anyways, we thought, well, you know, the rear window of your car, you've been using heating elements in that for decades. So right. that, that technology already exists. Let's use that. And we started thinking, well, you can't paint lines on these solar panels. Or they'll, you'll wipe out some of the cells. Mm-hmm. But thought, what if we put LEDs in there instead? Because, you know, we're in our 50s now, and we live on a long, winding, mountainous road. And our night vision is going. It happens as you get older. And it's getting harder and harder to see at night. And if it rains, forget it. I can barely see where the edge of the road is. Mm-hmm. So I thought if we put LEDs in there, we could light that up. And then it would be like driving down a runway or on a video game. There wouldn't be any guessing where the road was or lines were. But to have LEDs in there, you're going to have to have a microprocessor to control them. So that's something else that's true in the mix. And if you have a microprocessor, now you can have communications. These panels can talk to each other. They can talk to the cars going overhead. They can talk to a central control station. So that's kind of where it was all born. And I was still doing contract engineering work. We were batting this idea around for quite a while. And I finished up a job in southern Italy, um, I think it was February of 2006. We had a nice little nest egg by then. And my wife, she's there, but she has her own practice in town. And she says, why don't you take a year off now and see if anybody else is interested in the solar roadways idea. So that's what we did. That was four years ago, four and a half years ago. Wow. Um, we didn't. We we have zero marketing skills, so we didn't really know what to do, so we started a website. Mm-hmm. And fortunately for us, uh, treehugger.com picked up on it, ran a short article, and suddenly we started getting all kinds of attention. We got invited out uh a company called Booz Allen Hamill now East sent us an email wanting to know if we'd do a lecture or a talk out there. We'd never heard of them. We just thought it was an alcohol company or something wanted us to make ethanol. Mm-hmm. We kind of ignored it, and a few days later, Julie looked at him up and says, you know, maybe we ought to talk to these people because they have contracts with every government department we need, you know, the Department of Transportation, Department of Energy, EPA, Homeland Security, all these people we knew we'd have to work with. Mm-hmm. So we went, out, we went out and did the presentation, and then a few months later, they contacted us and asked us if we could build uh, some model solar road panels for them because they were opening up what they call the Future Transportation Lab, where they have, you know, just a, sort of like a museum, if you will, of what they think the future of transportation will look like. And we, we sent that to them. And we gave them a, a computer program to put on a laptop where people would write their names and it would show up on the road, things like that. And they even went a step further and somehow programmed their iPad or iPhones to control the, the the model. Anyways, they said that's a big hit. That's like the, the feature of their future transportation lab now. Mm-hmm. And we, while we were in town, we got invited to come over and present to the Federal Highway Administration, to their research department. And this was like our first year, and I thought, all right, these are the ones that are going to make or break us. If anybody's going to tell us we can't do it, it's going to be the Federal Highway Administration. So two days later, we did a presentation for them, also in Virginia. And it was about an hour and a half question and answer presentation. They were, you know, brainstorming with us how we'd retrofit these onto existing roads, and they really seemed to like the idea. And then, what was it? Last year, they came out with a solicitation for a uh, an intelligent paving system that pays for itself over time, over its lifespan. Right. So we applied for it, and we received uh, it's called an SBIR Small Business Innovative Research Grant or contract. And it was for $100,000, and what they told us is in a phase one research, you usually just write scientific papers and get professors to write scientific papers and try to convince your audience that you can build something, a prototype. And I thought about that, and I called them up, and I said, you know, I can write 
papers all day long and hire professors to do it if that's what you really want, or I could take that money and buy parts and go ahead and build it. And this one will go ahead. So that's what we did. If you go to our website, on the introduction page, there's a couple videos there. And I can't remember which one. I think it's uh, there's a picture of the prototype we built, and in the video, you'll see a demonstration of it. Go ahead and actually go ahead and give the URL for the website then. It's solarroadways.com. That's easy enough. I, uh, I yeah, did, pretty easy to find. <laughs> I did post uh, the links to your um, your YouTube stuff that was from Ted, you know, TEDx. Uh, on yeah. you know, so my listeners were aware of that stuff, and they were very happy about this particular show. Um, a friend of mine actually, um, Doug Millett, um, he's an engineer who works on the space shuttle program, and he was actually pretty happy about you know this show coming up. Um, but you know, it sounds to me that uh, you know it, what you're doing here, you know, is a really good solution, and it actually kind of solves a lot of different problems. I mean, because you're talking about heating up the roads, you know, well that gets rid of the need for the salt trucks, which gets rid of the the rust on cars, and you know, all of the other complications along with that. It makes the roads safer because there's always that period where, you know, you're still waiting for the salt trucks to get out. I live here in Michigan, and we're going through that right now. Yeah. Um, you know, and it it also you know, you know, it just it has a lot of you know other benefits, and the idea that eventually we could, in theory, get to the point that just like those slot cars you were talking about, that the the energy for the vehicle could come out of the roads that the vehicle travels on is just an amazing concept. Um, exactly. And, and go ahead. We, right now, we're looking, you know, um, um, what they call those the charging stations. Like they sell some of those now. I think GE has one uh, called the Watt Station. I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Anyways, you know, you could put those in rest areas, rest stops, or parking lots, anywhere you want so you could charge. But what we're looking into now is mutual induction. You know how some people have uh, these electric toothbrushes where you set it in a plastic cradle, but there's no electrical contact, no metal parts touching each other, but it charges, and that's really putting two halves of a transformer together to charge the toothbrush. So we're looking into doing the same thing with an electric vehicle, like an aftermarket add-on product being some kind of plate they mount underneath the car, it will draw power from the road, surface of the road, or inside the road, and that will connect to the battery. So it probably wouldn't be enough to charge the, you know, top off a battery while you're driving, but it certainly extend the range of an electric vehicle. Right. I think I, I talked to a Tesla owner, and he said, you know, if you go slow, you can get 150 miles out of it, but, you know, if you're zipping down the highway, you get 30 minutes. So, you know, it just depends on how fast you're driving. But the typical range is about 100 miles, and if we could do this, with mutual induction and extend that range to 200 miles, for instance. That's quite a bit of driving. It's about four hours driving on average. So if you think about that, and even if we did it statically, like the, the charging stations, if we could get one fast food restaurant, let's say McDonald's, if we could get them to go green and retrofit their parking lots with these solar road panels, well, first of all, they're kicking themselves off of what is primarily coal-fired electricity and using renewable energy now. And... If I'm, I'm here in Idaho, if I want to drive to Michigan or Florida, I can't do that in my electric car currently. But if all I have to do is start looking for golden arches on the highway, you know, I challenge you to find a section of American highway that has 50 miles of that between arches. I told somebody in Europe that once, and they, they said it's no different here now. So if that's all I have to do, now my electric vehicle has become practical. I can drive it as a family car all the way to Florida. Mm-hmm. So now you have people that have incentive to start trading in their internal combustion engines for electric vehicles. So while businesses are getting off coal, we as drivers are getting off oil, which is used to make the gasoline. 
So it could be, you know, theoretically in the future, the solar rotors could be the beginning of the end of fossil fuels. That's actually something that we're all looking forward to when you consider all the various problems that come along with fossil fuels. And I, you know, I often, because I know you mentioned global warming over the course of your TED thing, and, you know, that, you know, in the, in the activist world, global warming either creates, a, you know, a groan or a, yeah, let's get rid of that. And I generally kind of have to point out to people that even if global warming was for some reason false, there are all kinds of other complications that come from the things that cause global warming that, you know, are relevant, like acid rain. I'm not exactly fond of acid rain. And yeah. <laughs> I don't really And, and you're, you're right. Uh, there's Even if tomorrow Al Gore walks out and says, just kidding, folks, you know, even if that happens, Solar roadways is still a good idea. We still have to replace those petroleum-based asphalt roads. We can't afford to build them anymore. All right. the DOTs are broke. The Federal Highway Fund is broke. We just can't keep up with it. And, you know, I got one of my neighbors here is uh, Dr. Forrest Bird. He's the inventor of the Bird Respirator. Almost every hospital in the world has one now. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really just bottomed out infant mortality death rates. Uh, he's got what he calls a baby bird. But he's like, he's going to be 90 next year. And he's still mm-hmm. going on went to one of his parties last night for inventors. It was really neat, but real sharp guy. And he's telling me that he used to go around about 30 years ago to go to elementary schools. Mm-hmm. And he'd get in front of his kids and say, now how many people have any kind of respiratory illness or asthma? He said, maybe one hand would go up. He mm-hmm. said, nowadays when they go into school, he has 30% of the class puts their hands up. Right. And he believes the reason is, especially in the inner cities, people are breathing, you know, exhaust fumes all day long, the stuff from the factories, the coal plants, you know, we just trash the air, and it's causing all kinds of health problems. Now, whether that's global warming or not doesn't even matter. You've still got these respiratory problems. You've still got a lot of other problems. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, you see it. I mean, especially, I mean, obviously, I'm not really too fond of smog. I mean, they don't don't generally have other causes for smog. I mean, we don't get that really in Michigan, but, you know, in in places like San Francisco, San Diego is known for its smog. Um, You know, they're neat. I'm sorry, go ahead. uh, I flew into LAX once and rented a car and had to go to Santa Barbara for a meeting. Mm -hmm. When I was coming back, I got into Los Angeles, and we're in a traffic jam. And Mm -hmm. it was... I don't remember what time of year, but it was like 65 degrees. So I was kind of nice outside, so I started to crack the window. And I don't think it got down two inches, and my eyes were burning, and I was gagging. And it was the smog or whatever you call that. And I rolled the window up immediately, and there are people standing on motorcycles. I mean, they're just used to it. I thought, man, if it's affecting me, you know, I live up in the mountains. We don't get that. But these people have grown used to that. What is that doing to their lungs? Absolutely. And, in fact, you know, even though we don't get smog here, um, I can always tell when I've when I've uh, driven into Detroit, like because I'm you know <laughs> as a passenger because you smell it. There's a stench that you get as soon as you drive into Detroit. You know, yeah. it's very clear. And I still remember the very first time I ever went to Detroit. I was a young boy, and I was like, you know, what the hell is that smell? And you know, my father said that's Detroit. <laughs> yeah, you know, I used to live in Ohio. I drove past Detroit one time. I can't remember where I was going, but. All, it was off to the left-hand side of I-75, I believe it was, and all you could see is a big brown cloud where Detroit was. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a skyline, nothing. Just signs said Detroit that way, and that's all you could see. Yep, that's and I just I don't see how any of that's beneficial. But there's always you know people on both sides of the argument in theory are in a position to make money, so I, I just I kind of stay out of it. That's, 
you know, one of the things that I've told people is that research ends up getting held up by the profit motive, which is the reason why rather than, you know, I mean, I imagine that, you know, it's 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 less of an issue now because I think that the, the oil companies have figured out that we, we are kind of on to them. Um, who killed the electric car really exposed, yeah. you know, the, the role that oil companies were playing in keeping us from having these technologies. Um, in particular, when you look at all of the difficulties that we have had, based on the use of petroleum, you know, as far as internal combustion engines, you know, and the fact that we could avoid all of it, you know, in that and that there are still people out there who would just presume continuous down this path so that they can milk the, you know, the petroleum industry for all it's worth before it ends, you know, and the fact that almost without fail, these same companies are the ones that that patent any technology you know, that would effective, you know, it would make, you know, electric cars effective, it kind of puts you, you know, kind of obvious that, you know, these companies are, are doing their best to fight anything that doesn't require their product, petroleum, um, and that they're buying up any technologies that will use be used after petroleum is no longer a viable option to ensure that they still have control over the market. Um, and that's why I'm glad, you, you know, you were able to get help. And, you know, actually, that's an interesting point that comes up a lot is that, you know, the people in, you know, the movement in particular that listen to my radio show generally come from, you know, most a lot of them are college kids and, you know, they're generally looking for, you know, projects that they can get involved in. Um, I mean, are you guys looking for any further help in solar roads? Like if, you know, not right now, we don't have the funding right now. Right now it's just me and my wife and I have two volunteer electrical engineers and, you know, when we have funding, we pay them and when not, they come up anyways. We just don't, we're not ready yet. We're still in the development yeah. stages. Right. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's basically it. You know, and I, I guess so. What you were saying though is, is that yeah, obviously you're not ready yet, but you know, in the future you will be. Um, oh, in the future we're going to need a lot of people, sure. And I mean, what kind of uh, credentials would they need? Like, what kind of people? You know, it, it, it depends. For? We're going to have if if this thing goes full scale and we start retrofitting all the roads, you know, everything from assembly workers to put the things together. You know, we're estimating about 2.5 million full-time assembly jobs alone. Now, that doesn't even count. You know, for instance, that's just taking pre-existing parts and putting them into the panel, for instance, the LEDs. Well, we're going to need a lot more LEDs than we've ever used before, so the LED manufacturers are going to have to hire people, and everybody who makes the parts that we're going to use are going to start, start hiring. Mm-hmm. So everywhere from just basic assembly all the way up to, you know, your engineering guys who are designing it and, and uh, improving it and all that. So, you know, it's full spectrum, really. Excellent. What's really neat is uh, when I go out and do these uh, presentations, it's not really the older. you got a lot of the older guys who are interested and curious, but a lot of it's younger college-age students. And I've run into a lot of people who have, like, environmental engineering degrees. They didn't even have those when I went through college. So I think right. that's great. You know, they got entire engineering degrees in this stuff now, which is fantastic. And you got this new generation coming up who is concerned about the environment, but yeah, that's, about, you know, the future, you know. The alternative energy uh, is something that you can get a degree in now, too. And even tech schools like MIT and such, are MIT Tech are offering, you know, you can just go to school and, and become a certified, you know, person in regards to just working on these things. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, I'm hoping that that works out. I know that we here in Michigan have been saying for a while that we wish that somebody would, you know, do the manufacturing for something, you know, for for this sort of thing here in the United States because they're always telling us, you know, we need to find, you know, new markets since the auto industry seems to be drying up. And 
You know, and I hope they do because there is a huge infrastructure, you know, just sitting and waiting to be used here in the United States that could easily be converted to working on the kind of projects you're talking about. Now, um, yeah. now I had you uh, check out um, Welcome to the Future, uh, the film, the brief little film about uh, the Venus Project. And uh, yeah. so what was your commentary on that? It's interesting. I had heard of them before. Even I thought about them this past uh, summer. We were involved in the GE Eco Imagination Challenge. We're looking for a new smart grid and new ways of using renewable energy. And I came across the Venus Project, and I thought, what a perfect marriage for solar roadways. Mm-hmm. And after watching the videos, uh, I think there are four parts there for a total of about 32 minutes. Very, and I didn't write quite catch that they've actually built one of these cities yet. No, so no, they haven't. Period. Okay. <laughs> But I mean, what you know? I did catch the part where somebody had bought 25 acres in Florida, like the starting point. Well, basically, what, what they have going on there is they have kind of a research center and they demonstrate what some of the stuff that they're doing. But yeah, it's it's basically uh, Jacques's been working on it forever, and it wasn't until very recently, due to some internet films that were made, that every, anybody even really knew about it. That's basically how I, you know, came across it. He. You know, grew up during the Great Depression and just as, you know, he he's really into technology, obviously, but he kind of looks at it as a way that, you know, we need to get eventually anyway, get to the point that we're past this, the, the social paradigm that we're currently in. And he points out that technology like yours already exists, um, you know, and in the cities that he did, he describes, you know, yeah, the, the solar roadway technology would kind of be a, a foregone conclusion, Um he wants to put photovoltaics in basically everything, you know, yeah, it, um, along with using geothermal and other forms of power. But, but yeah, um, go ahead and continue with your your commentary on it then. Oh well, I was just thinking uh, when I was going through the website and stuff this past summer, I think, man, this is a perfect application. Mm-hmm. You got a new city with a new infrastructure coming up, and what better thing to put down on your, you know, it's not just roadways. We're going to parking lots first. You got parking lots, bike paths, sidewalks. Any basically any flat surface, mm-hmm. um, sports complexes, amusement parks, anything. All you huh. do is wherever you, wherever you're going, planning on putting asphalt or concrete, you can put solar road panels instead. Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, what a perfect application. Yeah, parking and uh, parking structures. I mean, you you don't really think about it. Uh, you know, um, you know, you pointed out playgrounds. Uh, obviously, you've got basketball courts. There's just you know. Yeah. There's all these, I mean, the only thing I could think about about parking lots is that often they happen to have an awful lot of cars on them, but, you know, there's still spaces in between them, and then obviously, you know, when the car isn't there, there's no reason that that energy should just be going to waste, and that's why yeah. jock sticks, you know, photovoltaics, like I said earlier, photovoltaics on virtually everything, so, <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, let's put them on the outside of houses, let's put them on the like, here and there, oh, yep, let's stick them over there, too, you know, we got a surface, might as yeah. well stick some photovoltaics on that, you know, you and... Yeah. Um, now, as regards to the idea, I mean, did you did you del- I mean, did you consider anything in regards to this concept of a resource-based economy once we can get to the point that we have the ability to manufacture the needs of mankind? I wasn't real clear on what the resource-based. What was it again? Resource-based economy. I wasn't real clear on that. Oh, okay. Well, basically, I guess I'll just explain it since we brought it up anyway. Um, okay. A resource-based economy is essentially an economy that that's based on the you know the resources that are available on the planet, and it pays attention to uh, you know the the carrying capacity of the Earth, measures you know how many people we can obviously be able to take care of, 
uh, you know, and it treats any kind of uh, problem like, okay, so we have a food shortage in this place. Um, you know, rather than declaring war and like taking from somebody to you know to get it, then obviously we declare war on the food shortage. We find a way to solve the food shortage using the scientific method um, and technology. Uh, that's that's the quickest you know basically scientific method applied for social concern to try to find solutions to mankind's problems. Um, also within the environment, you know, if you're having a certain problem with a certain crime in a certain area, discern why people are doing it. You know, find a means by which to make it so that that crime is no longer, uh, you know, a point, you know, a problem. You know, so there's no point yeah. to it. Um, well, let me tell you an idea we have. Mm-hmm. Sort of in line with that. Like right now, I'm I'm not an economist or a sociologist or anything like that, but I think the world economy is in a mess right now. Mm-hmm. And a lot of, you know, in this country, we're shipping a lot of our jobs overseas. That that job I told you about, where I was develop or director of research and development for 12 years. Mm-hmm. That that company got sold to a new entity that decided they're going to ship all this design stuff overseas. Now they doubled their profits, but how many American jobs did they just lose? Right. So that that was you know in my opinion greed based, and I know when that first started it was a hit and miss. You know a lot of stuff didn't work at all because well you get what you pay for I guess. Mm-hmm. But our thought is rather than doing that, and you were mentioning Detroit, you know the auto worker jobs are disappearing, um, a lot of things getting automated. Our thought is, you know, we got contacted by a road building company in Italy, and they wanted to, they had the funding to build what they're calling a virtual highway, and they wanted to use our solar roadways for that, but we weren't ready. And they said, well, what would it take you to get ready? And I told them we need X amount of dollars to finish our research and development, and they said, well, what happens if we get that money for you? Mm-hmm. So we thought about it, and I said, well, okay, you do that, you can own like 90% of solar roadways Italia. Right. But Here's the here's stipulations. You can only hire Italians to work in the factory. You can only hire Italians to lay these and maintain them on the road, and you can never export. Now, the idea, we made that offer to Italy. We've made it to Japan and a couple other places so far. The idea is let's put everybody to work rather than a couple choice countries on the Pacific Rim. Will it cost more to make them in America? Sure. you got to pay Americans $15, $20 an hour to put these things together. Right. rather than $4 a day in Thailand, for instance. But that puts everybody to work. And it's not an American product. It is an American product, but it's not an American project, really. Mm-hmm. Because it, even if you retrofit every road in America and we don't ever use coal again, that's just America. you got all the rest of the world still using coal. So we need to get this kind of technology spread around the globe. And if we do that and we give jobs to everybody, that will wipe out a lot of hunger. Because now they can afford to eat, they can afford to get food. We can, you know, we can move to the interior of Africa, for instance, Louise, and we just start shipping panels in. Everybody's so used to centralized power sources, and theirs, theirs were built in the 50s and 60s. We can move these in and start spreading these out in a village. Now they have electricity for the first time. We give them a satellite dish. Now they got internet access and education. We can really change the way the world works. Yeah, that's that's actually you know a great way of going about it. I mean, I hope you can succeed with that. Um, I mean, I guess my concern would be that somebody would probably just try to you know mimic what you were doing and undercut you by you know by outsourcing. But um, you know, as long as you can you know stay ahead of the game and provide the best technology, I guess that could work. Um, but it's it's great to hear that somebody who is in a position to be an entrepreneur like you are 
you know, actively cons- you know, considers that and you actively think about how to just improve the economy everywhere. Um, yeah. is, unfortunately, that's just not really the case anymore. Um, it, not, not today. I mean, how many wars are started because of, you know, economic problems? But if, if this becomes a worldwide project and everybody's working on it and helps saving the planet in the process, I think there will be a lot of stresses around the world, hopefully. That's well. That's kind of the point about you know what we were saying about preventing war and preventing crimes is, you know, you get rid of the need to do so and you know or any benefit of doing so. Uh, and that's it's just like you know the, you know the notion you know for example of you know if you create a world wherein there, there isn't as much stress. Well, then a lot of the reason that people use drugs and alcohol go away. Um, yeah. You know that's a heck of a lot more effective than say. Uh, just creating a law that says you're not allowed to use these things because that just creates an underground, which then creates a demand, you know. Um, and that's these. This is kind of the example of the kind of problem solving for the world that Jacques Fresco advocates in the Venus Project. Um, you know, is that a lot of our problems are in some way directly related to scarcity of something that is required to survive. Um, and even if you're not a bad person, you know, the this the the stress of a given situation, anytime you're in financial stress, you know, has a tendency to create, you know, um, irritability and then eventually violence. Um, there's, yeah. you know, studies about that. Uh, Peter Joseph talked about the Merva Fowl study, which was a study that um, basically measured how as unemployment rised, violent crimes went up with it. Um, even ones that weren't directly related to people, you know, feeding themselves, you know, they, they're stressed out, they go home, you know, maybe they get in a fight with their, you know, their significant other, or maybe they take it out on their children, or maybe they take it out on their neighbor. You know, it's uh, it's it's amazing the power that, you know, that money problems have over somebody, uh, you know, as far as stress is concerned. And, you know, and as far as, uh, you know, when you think about it, the kinds of things that go down with all of this, I know, for example, the, the quality of life here in Michigan because of the gas prices combined with the bad economy um, is seriously affected. You know, people can't go see their friends. They can't go see their family. You know, I still remember when spending $5 was enough to, you know, like, hey, can you give me a ride here? I'll give you 5 bucks for gas. Nowadays, you look at somebody and you say, hey, can you give me a ride for 5 bucks?" And then maybe they'll take you down <laughs> the street, you know. Certainly not. You know, it's like $20 at least, you know, and that's not even just from inflation. Obviously, it's just from the change of the, the economy and, and the price of, of oil. And that's that's a problem that's only going to continue. Um, and, you know, but as whereas you suggest, you know, in, in, in the world that you're talking about, if we all have these solar roadways, particularly if we develop the technology in regards to the electric cars, you know, I will be able to go see my friends. It won't be a big deal, you know. Um, yeah. And that's, that's basically the kind of a means by which, you know, there are so many other things, you know, that, that could go along with that, you know, because the power that you're talking about will pay for, you know, I mean, they'll pay essentially will replace the need to pay for uh, shipping, you know, emergency vehicles. It won't be running out of gas, you know, uh, and never mind all of the problems that go along with the internal combustion engine, like the never ending need to service these things. Um, mm-hmm. That's one of the things, actually, I know on one of my previous radio shows that if anybody listening would like to check it out, I had a fellow from uh, um, Plug in America on my show, and he basically they're kind of an independent company that just got formed to make electric cars and to help people learn about them. Um, some of the people from Who Killed the Electric Car are involved, including that pretty redheaded lady that you see throughout the movie. She's part of it, and. Um, in any case, you know, he pointed out that he's had the same electric car now for like eight years, 
and all he's ever had to do is is change the tires if like one of them got flattened by something. Um, he's never had to do anything else to that car in eight years. The, the concept of that is so crazy. You know, you know, you always have to take your car in. You, the notion that a car isn't going to break down for eight years, that's just incredible. And it's mostly because the electric motor is just more efficient, has far less parts to break. You know, yeah. um, it, it just overall is a better idea. And that's that's another reason that, you know, the the electric car technology gets held back is because the service industry, industry for vehicles will take a huge hit. You know, um, yeah, they, they talk about that on Who Killed the Electric Car. Yeah. So all the aftermarket items, you know, your air filter, oil filter, wiper blades, all that. Some of the wiper blades will still be the same, but there's so many parts they count on. It's a multi-billion-dollar business. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. But you're right. You know, if you take that internal combustion engine, that's got so many moving parts, and every one can break, and you're dealing with intense heat, and you know, all kinds of things can do go wrong. And that, you know, brings us back to, you know, we've been using that same technology for over 100 years. We've been using the same asphalt roads for over 100 years. And it's time to move on. Yep, and and the funny thing is, I mean, that's why, you know, it's great that you're taking this step and that you're actually being conscious of the impact that, you know, that what you're suggesting will have on the local economy for the, you know, for the people in question. Unfortunately, most people in that position um, have a tendency to do things simply, you know, to, to be to take into account what effect it'll have on the economy only for themselves, and that's how you end up in situations like, you know, Michael Moore's film, uh, Capitalism: A Love Story. He invest, you know, he uh, interviews that fellow, the CEO from Nike, and you know, it's pretty clear the guy just kind of convinced himself that it was totally okay that sweatshop workers were making Nike shoes that get sold for, you know, a lot of money. Nike's a big brand. Um, yeah. You know, and it's not you know, and the funny thing is, is that even, even it's just it's just like the issue of pollution, really. It's 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 like economic pollution. You know, you may be paying off right now for not throwing you know your garbage in the you know in the trash. You know, you know, you don't have to worry about it. But eventually, you know, you're going to get to a point that there's the consumers are not going to be able to afford to buy your products. You know, that's. <laughs> And that's kind of where, what happens when you slowly destroy your economy by endless, you know, outsourcing with no concern whatsoever. You know, automation is another problem um, along that line, and we talk about that. Let's like, because not all the auto industry jobs here were lost to, uh, you know, were lost to outsourcing. They were, you know, in many cases they can automate, you know, almost entire factories, and you just need a few maintenance men to do the job. It's, it seems that it's kind of headed in the direction that that's what's going to happen. That's why we call it technological unemployment. And it's one of the things that why we think that eventually mankind is going to have to evolve past the concept of, of trade and um, uh, essentially profit in particular, because we're, we're going to get to a point where our technology makes the idea that selling your labor um, is a feasible way to make a living. Um, it's, it's, just quickly eliminating jobs. And, I mean, that yeah. it is the trend within the industry. They, I mean, they pay guys. They call them efficiency experts. But their entire lot in life is to find ways to eliminate jobs. Um, yeah. You know, and I guess, you know, to get back on, you know, your project and such, uh, what kind of feedback have you gotten? What kind of reactions? Positive reactions? Negative reactions? You know, any that are really memorable? It's, uh, it's actually part of our presentation is when we first started our website, you know, we'd seen blogs before, but we never had them directed at us. And it's really interesting because, you know, you get, it seems like it's mostly the two extremes. Either people think it's an incredibly stupid idea or they think it's the greatest idea since sliced bread. Right. And, you know, the ones who claim it's stupid, you know, you read through the blogs and, you know, 
somebody coming and want their Friday night basement dwellers. Mm-hmm. Or, or technology or engineering flunky wannabe type thing, people. But it, it's it's weird. People want to put themselves in the position of being an expert. Like, you can't drive on glass. Well, I've got universities and everything else, glass experts, so yeah, you can. And they want to argue things like that. Other people see it for what it is. You know, it's a, it's time. And, you know, part of our presentation is I've got like 10 of these quotes, you know, five good, five bad, mixed, layered. And it's just, it's, some of it's hilarious, some of it's, you know, it used to really bother my wife a lot to read this stuff, and it you know, kind of got into my skin a little bit, but you learn, you, your skin gets thicker, you get used to it. Mostly, it's positive. I had, what well, was Magazine, somebody had written an article, and they, they'd made one mistake, and the bloggers were taking it apart, and I contacted the magazine, I'm not sure that's the one, there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. you go to our People Are Talking page, you'll see all the articles. But... The editor told me, he says, yeah, we'll fix that, but it doesn't matter. He says, they're going to attack it no matter what. They do that with every, every idea with your author. So there's that group of people who just want to be negative. So we've gotten used to it. Well, that's you know that's very true, particularly on the Internet. It's actually kind of ironic that you pointed that out because I'm I'm working on a, a film. I'm going to make a documentary film about that about that tendency on the internet, the, the troll phenomenon, the people who just seem to make their life finding a way to, you know, to, to drop an ego bomb on somebody from the safety of their keyboards, and how in many cases it's not even that they even care about what they're talking about. They just they just want to hurt somebody. You know, it's yeah, it's their means of getting. You know, it's just the, the notion that anybody would act like that. But it, you know, but it's it's very true. It's a very real phenomenon, and in every instance, they always hide behind the idea of oh well. You know, I'm, I just really care about this topic, and I'm really mad at you because you don't agree with me. But it just it happens everywhere. It's the same stuff. Yeah. You know, you can't go to any forum and not deal with this unless the moderation mm-hmm. finds, you know, unless the moderation can be very diligent to fix it. You know, and but in any case, um, you know, it, it seems to me, you know, as you were talking about reactions, uh, Jacques Fresco pointed out that, uh, you know, that during the time that the Wright brothers were working on their plane. Uh, there were physics experts writing books about how man would never fly. You know, <laughs> the, these ideas are often felt, you know, are basically looked at yeah. that way. Man will never that, get. That's to actually a part of my. That's Go. actually part of my presentation because I grew up in Dayton, Ohio, where the Wright brothers had their bicycle shop. Mm-hmm. And so my presentation, I talk about the, the bloggers, and then I talk about what would have happened if they had the internet back around the turn of last century when the Wright brothers they flew in 1903, and let's say 1900, 1901, they announced. We're going to build a heavier-than-air flying machine. You know what the bloggers would have done to them? Yeah. It might be. Maybe it was their neighbors that ran them off, because I never did understand why they left Dayton, Ohio, and went down to North Carolina to actually fly the machine. <laughs> <laughs> no. Maybe it's all the naysayers in Dayton, Ohio. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I used to live in Dayton, too, actually. Uh, when I was when I was really young, my half-brother, um, he was in the Air Force, and he worked at Wright-Patterson. and I loved, mm-hmm. the, I loved the Air Museum down there. Um, oh, that's the greatest museum there is, yeah. Yeah, I just it was so much so much history packed into one place. You know, in any case yeah. though, I just you know, it's it, things like that, you know, man will never go to the moon, man will never get into space, man will never do this, man will never do that. And you know, it's like a lot of the stuff in particular that Gene Roddenberry talked about and um ironically, some of Roddenberry's people also talked to Jacques Fresco because he was a futurist. So they asked yeah. him, you know, what do you think, you know, your ideas of the future and you know, and Ironically, uh, if you look at Gene Roddenberry's idea for a future economy, he basically says that Earth turns into what amounts to a resource-based economy. Now, in order to achieve it easily, they pointed out that you know you have these um, 
you know, that you have those those uh, devices that allow you to, you know, rework atoms and just make whatever you want. As soon as you can do that, obviously there's there's no point in having money. Now they still had money, you know, to interact with other species, but on Earth itself there was a resource-based economy. Um, now, it, but also, you know, when you look at some, you know, the people look at that and they think the idea that we'll we'll ever do that is crazy. But they also said he was nuts when he said that we would ever have communicators that you know, we could communicate with that you could hold in your hand. And, and now, you know, everybody's <laughs> got a cell phone. Everybody's got, you know, um, you know, iPods, iPads. These things are getting crazy, some of the stuff that they can do. you got a little computer, you know, running around. I, I remember, you know, how the computers used to be, you know, a mainframe, like the amount of power you'd get in a mainframe, which was a computer that would take up, like, my entire house. You know, it can fit, you know, on a desktop. You know, it's... Oh, yeah. These kinds of things, you know, is that technology continues to advance because technology helps us find even more technology. You know, it, it's essentially a, a never-ending, you know, spiral towards perfection. You know, and we'll probably never get perfection because we're human, but, but still, you know, it's it, it is kind of an example of that. And you know, I'm I'm looking forward to a future where you know our roads and all of our you know places in which that you know just are kind of space that is just sitting there that could be sucking up you know, energy from the sun are doing exactly that. Um, thank you once again also for, for being willing to come on. And um, if you get any further developments, for example, please don't hesitate to contact me. You know, V Radio would love to report on, you know, uh, the direction that you're taking this. My listeners were very happy about hearing about this project and being able to converse with you and, you know, and listen about what it is that you were doing. Now, um you said that eventually, you know, you know, you guys aren't at the stage now because you don't have the funding to really start mass production. Is there anything else that the listeners could do to try to help you, maybe to help spread awareness of this idea? Yeah, know? spreading awareness mostly. Um, we've had a lot of articles written about us, but, you know, we're still barely scratched the surface of people getting to know. I mean, if they can write their congressman or senator or anybody, local newspaper, whatever, just to let it, you know, get even word of mouth, just send everybody out on, you know, Facebook or MySpace or whatever, just let people know, drive them toward our site. Right. Get the word out there that, you know, there is a solution. We just need to fund this thing. That's, yeah, that's definitely uh, something that I tell people all the time. You know, we now live in the information age. People really forget how powerful their social networking is, you know, you, you make something go viral, and then it, it it has a power that people cannot squelch. You know, it's that's why you know so many politicians, for example, were able to accomplish as much as they have. You know, you have guys like Ron Paul. In the days before the internet, nobody would even know who he was. He would have been eliminated from the debates probably within the first couple of months, and then that would have been the end of him. There wouldn't have been you know any movement beyond that. And whether you agree with Ron Paul or not, that's still points to the fact that the blogosphere, the you know, the websites like Dig, things like that have a serious impact um on, you know, the information that people have. And if if the you know, other people are not going to report on this, then it's going to come down to us, you know. You know, in fact, I just thought of something. Um have you thought about maybe going on an episode of Big Ideas for a Small Planet? I'm not even familiar with that. Oh, wow, we should fix that. I've had several guests from Big Ideas for a Small Planet. It's a very cool TV show. Um, I believe it's on the Sundance channel. Um, I could look that up. But, um, yeah, it's it's a TV show where they bring on people with ideas like yours 
on a regular basis. Um, and it's it's on cable. You can you you can watch it on Hulu. You can watch it on Netflix. Um, and it's a great TV show. Uh, I had a guy actually who, uh, for example, he specializes in helping people turn their diesel engines to you know into uh, vegetable oil vehicles. You know yeah. that run on the vegetable oil that people just throw away. Um, I had another guy, you know, who specializes in kind of like trying to find ways to cause plants to grow in such a way that they become houses rather than having to build houses, things like that. Um, you know, so yeah, your your idea really fits into the concept of big ideas for a small planet. I would look into that, and you know, cool. and maybe uh, you know, if my listeners are willing to pester them enough, <laughs> say, hey, we want this to be <laughs> <There> featured. You, <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of the idea. Of the reason that I do this with V Radio um, is that I want to bring attention to these ideas. Maybe the mainstream media is not doing as good of a job. So. Um, and uh, in addition to that, um, if you could, uh, at some point, if you, I don't know if you have any articles or whatever that you've ever written about this, I might be able to submit them to the, the newsletter um, for the movement that goes out to about 500,000 people worldwide and gets translated into like 30 different languages. So that's another possibility that we could do to help you. Um, okay. And uh, But anyway, uh, we're coming up you know, now basically near the end of the show. I'm going to ask people... If you guys want to call in, now is the time. Um, v Radio has once again a, a toll-free number. That's one eight seven seven four eight three three one six zero. Another option is to be added via Skype. My Skype is VTV one one five. If you would like to be added to the call, uh, then PM me on Skype and tell me that you'd like to be added to the call. So that being said, um, actually, uh, to give you an idea, in addition, because we were talking a little bit about Star Trek, uh, there's one episode in particular uh, that I thought was kind of funny because we use it to sometimes to explain what we mean by a resource-based economy and how alien the concept is to certain people, is that you know there was an episode where they, they find these people who were in a capsule because they all had some kind of terminal illness, and uh, they wake them up. And one of the guys was this, you know, big-time entrepreneur, you know, back in the 20th century. He had all this money, and, you know, he owned some big corporation or something. And the whole time, he just keeps trying to say, so where's my money? You know, I had, you know, all of this stuff set aside. And, and Picard looks at him, and he's like, what are you talking about? You know, like, the guy was crazy. He's like, you know, I had all this money in my portfolio, this and that, you know, and it was all supposed to be put aside for me. And you know, it, it took Picard forever because the guy just wouldn't, you know, leave him alone. And of course, it's an episode of Star Trek, so they got to bother. You know, they got to cover all kinds of other things. And he says to him, you know, he's, he, you know, eventually he just explains to him, he's like, you know, we don't, we don't have money anymore. We don't have material need. You know, we have replicators. <laughs> you know, it's <laughs> what's the point of it? You know, he's like, well, then what, what motivates people? He's like, well, what motivates you is bettering yourself and, you know, uh, developing things to help mankind. You know. And that notion was really was was kind of foreign to that guy, but it, it's not quite so foreign to some of us who study things like you know the stuff that you're doing. And that's, you know, as you pointed out, you know, what motivated you to get this started um, actually is a very pure motivation, and we talk about that too. You know, um, there's a study by a guy named Daniel Pink who studied, you know, what motivates people, and in particular, there was an MIT study about it, and they pointed out that. You know, a lot of the motivation for things, particularly jobs that require lots of technical engineering know-how, 
you know, um, end up being not really very well motivated by money. These are people who want to help the world. Um, you, if you wanted to, for example, you could just take your, your concept to some company that was then in turn going to have these, uh, you know, solar panels manufactured in some third world country, you know, to some slave owners. And, you know, you're not interested in doing that. And, you know, that's that's the kind of mentality that we need more of. And it, it's funny that it's it's the smart people that, that think along these lines. I just wish more people did, um, you know. And uh, so... In any case, um, now, is there anything else in regards to your experiences with this that you wanted to share with the audience before we're finished? Oh, I could talk all day long. <laughs> That's what we're here um, for. <laughs> yeah. Now, it's it's really been, you know, what, what really sticks out to me the most is volunteers. I mean, we've had so many people contact us. They love the idea. They just want to be part of it. One of the engineers I told you about, the, our volunteers, he lives about an hour from here. He called me one day or emailed me, and he introduced himself. He said, I'm an electrical engineer, but I'm out of work right now. He says, "Even he says, I know you're in development, so you probably can't pay me, and I don't know if you even have anything for me to do, but if all I can do is flip burgers, that's what I want to do. I just want to be a part of this now. And we've had that kind of attitude from a whole lot of people. Matter of fact, our original website, I made myself. I'm not a website maker, whatever you call them. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, you know, being an engineer, I just think I just get the facts out there. So you know, I, I got all the information up there, but you know, quite candidly, it, it was a really sucky website. People told me so, but I thought, you know, who cares? I'm not out to make money and sell stuff. I'm just trying to tell people what's going on. Well, two college students from Wisconsin contacted us, and they were web developers, and they said, "Would you mind if we just ran with this and did it for you for free? Because we want to be a part of this too." And what you see today is what they made for. You know, they didn't charge us for that. That's actually, ironically, before you said that, the funny thing that clicked into my head was I was like, you know, I'll bet you there's bound to be somebody in the Zeitgeist movement or the Venus Project who would like to volunteer to help you with your web. I mean, that's what happened with me. It was one of my listeners just stepped forward and said, hey, I really like your radio show. Can I make your website? And I asked him how much it would cost me, and he said it doesn't cost me anything. And, and you know, he has never charged me a dime for it. You know, yeah, and that's um, I mean, these are altruistic offerings from people, and this is great. That's what really sticks out the most to me is people want this. They want to be a part of it. And we can make this a worldwide movement, you know, start retrofitting, like like your friend Jacques said, you know, put solar cells on everything. Mm-hmm. We can slap these down any place you walk or drive or ride a bike. That's I mean, very why put true. down asphalt or concrete that gives you nothing back? It just sits there. you, you got to have a hard surface anyways. Put something down that's going to pro- provide, you know, clean, renewable power and eliminate the need for fossil fuel. That's, yep, absolutely. You know, and I and I think that uh, more people that are, are looking at things from that angle, because that's one of the things about the Venus Project's pr- um, proposals is more, mostly you, just, you sit and listen to Jacques Fresco talk about his approach to things and, and finding solutions to problems. You know, he says that, you know, don't put up a sign that says slippery when wet. Design roads with abrasives so that they're not slippery when wet. You know, these... Yeah. These kinds of just the, the thought process that goes into the way that he wants to do things, you know, um, and, and, and the way that he suggests that we do things as people who are going to be designing things in the future, you know, people who even have more credentials, obviously, than he does because he's not an engineer. Um, you know, his expertise more had to do with, like, you know, he's the kind of person who, you know, creates the concept drawings and then he hands it to the technicians who take it from there. But, you know, 
he was trying to look at things. I mean, he has invented things of his own, and and generally it just has to do with trying to find a practical solution to a problem that you know, and look for you know ways to to fix problems in in that way rather than just accepting that a certain uh, concept or whatever is flawed. You, you find a way to make it so that it's not flawed anymore. You know, he he gave an example. You know, of like we could design automobiles so that. You know, they don't operate if somebody's drunk rather than being so concentrated on making drinking and driving illegal. You know, that's if we don't just automate the vehicles entirely, which is another possibility that, you know, is already feasible. Um, you know, and he also talks about the possibility of, you know, eventually just, you know, making mass transit not something that you just sort of add into a community later. You know, it should be built into the very infrastructure. When you build a city, you should be thinking about, well, this is where our monorail is, monorail slash subway is going to go from the get-go, yeah. not just try to cram it into an existing infrastructure, which costs, you know, ridiculous amounts of money, you know. Um, so, yeah, but yeah, that's, you know, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how this, this plan of yours develops. And once again, you know, please don't hesitate to get in contact with us if you have anything that you need or, you know, anything as far as like any new developments so that I can share it with my listeners. And anytime you want to come back on, you just let me know. You have my contact information. All right. I appreciate it. Um, and that being said, um, I'm going to go ahead and end this segment of V Radio. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Um, please visit vradio.org, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find archives of shows like this one. Um, and uh, to talk to you a little bit more after we get off the air, so just so you're aware, so don't just hang up um, when I end this segment. Um, and, uh, and to anybody who is listening now, in addition, yes, uh, you heard right. I am uh, just began working on a project where I'm going to be making a film about uh, Internet debate tactics, uh, ad hominem, personal attack, uh, all the different logical fallacies that people employ in, you know, in conversation, uh, and try to put them all together in one place. Uh, it's going to have South Park quotes in it, so of course it'll be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I will leave you guys with some words from Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows. Thank you for tuning in to V Radio. This is Roxanne Meadows, and this is Jacques Fresco, and you're listening to V Radio. <laughs> <laughs>